0: So for nurse practitioner education, we have something we go by that's called the National Task Force of NP Education. In those new task force standards, it does say that to teach the clinical didactic content, the nurse practitioner faculty have to maintain that practice setting. So that is one of the requirements that we are seeing coming out of accreditation um, is that standard in practice that, yes, To keep your clinical skills up and that knowledge skills up, you still need to maintain that practice.
1: How can nursing education better prepare nurses to advocate for patients of diverse backgrounds? And can nurses make a difference in improving the health of all patients, no matter their race or socioeconomic status? Let's talk all about it with Dr. Michaela Elby, Assistant Dean of Nursing and Associate Professor at Maryville University, right here on Episode 445, of the nurse keith show hey there this is nurse keith this podcast is always about you and your personal professional development your nursing and healthcare career and the healthcare system in the bigger picture and i'm here to share education ideas diatribes and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare nursing entrepreneurship education medicine and beyond i love having you along for the ride and i thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing nurse keith nation if you'd like to help other people find the show the ubiquitous request is that you leave a rating and review and you can do that on apple podcasts or google or even Amazon or Spotify, or just share the show from any app where you happen to be listening with anyone who you think might benefit from it or enjoy it. Also, you can consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith over at Patreon people pledge as little as $2 a month to help support the dissemination and the production of the show it really does help and if you'd like to pitch in for a little while i'd greatly appreciate it and if you give more than $2 maybe 5 or 10 you get some great premiums from me anyway the show notes will be over at nursekeith.com in the drop down menu labeled podcasts and actually the show notes will be in any app where you happen to be listening as well and like I said we are here with Dr. Michaela Elby. She is from Maryville University, assistant dean of nursing and associate professor of nursing. And Dr. Elby, you've had a really interesting career and you've been focused on some very specific issues related to DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion and even your um doctoral dissertation had to do with something very specific in that particular arena. So, my first question is: What drew you into considering all these issues of DEI? What was the like? Was there a specific impetus that made you think, "Huh, this is really something I need to focus on"?
0: I think it was just patient experiences. Um, my background: I worked in postpartum in a high-risk population in the St. Louis region. Primarily, my patients were African-American patients, um, patients of diverse backgrounds and realizing, looking at, you know, why are they needing high risk care? What's affecting them? Um, Listening to my patients. And then as a nurse practitioner working in a uh, FQHC um, in a underserved patient population in downtown St. Louis, realizing my patients needed help. They needed to be heard. They needed to be listened and they needed care. Um, so that kind of became my big background, and seeing how can I help my patients? Um, how can I listen to my patients and support them to ensure they're getting the care that they need? They're not afraid to come see me. Um, you know, they're not afraid to reach out when they need assistance, and know that they can trust the healthcare system, their healthcare providers, and especially nurses um, in that in that population.
1: And for those who aren't familiar with the term, FQHC means Federally Qualified Health Center. I cut my teeth in FQHCs serving underserved populations in Springfield, Massachusetts and Holyoke, Massachusetts. And that was mostly a Latinx population, though we also had African-American and some Asian, but it was very Hispanic area. And they had very specific needs and very specific needs. Um, social determinants of health that needed Mm -hmm. to be addressed, right? And so when you were working in FQHC, was it as a nurse practitioner?
0: It was. It wasn't as a nurse practitioner, but my patients, even as a nurse, were primarily from the surrounding FQHCs in the St. Louis region. Hmm. So my whole nursing career, I would say I've worked primarily in underserved patient population areas, um, whether it be at the bedside you know, seeing patients coming from those FQHCs, but they tended to need high risk care, um, as well as then working with them as a nurse practitioner.
1: Okay, what are some of the disparities that you particularly have run into that are sort of the most, the most disturbing that make you make your head spin and make you feel like you want to fix it? What yeah. what's popped up that you feel like These things really have to change.
0: I think one, access to any part of access of care, Um, having patients trying to decide, can I afford my medications or can I afford the food that I need? Um, Thinking about the tests we order, which I think goes critical into the education of how we prepare nurses and nurse practitioners and healthcare providers in general, thinking about what tests do I essentially need to make those decisions and how is it affecting my patient? Because if we order a test, those patients have to decide, do I get that test? Or do I buy the medicine that you're prescribing? Or do I just in general get the food that I need to you know, go to the grocery store? Um, transportation, making sure that we realize our patients can't get two visits because of the location. And we need to make sure that either we're providing transportation or we're going to the patients. That's one of the biggest barriers. I'm not in a rural area. I'm in an urban setting. Yes, we have public transportation, but public transportation costs money. Um, So when patients, you know, can't even afford the few dollars it takes to get on the bus to get to the medical practice, how do we get to them? How do we make sure that they are getting those follow-ups and those care? Um, So there's some real big barriers that we have to understand and how we provide care for our patients. Um, and not make it a scary environment. That's the other startling thing is a lot of the patients, when I talk to them about why didn't you come sooner, they're afraid, they're scared. Um, they're scared that they're gonna find out you know, the worst diagnosis, um, but they're also scared about what is the outcome that we're gonna provide? What's that additional cost that we're going to add to them in treating them? So we have to really take all of that into consideration when we're thinking about how we, Educate patients, talk to patients, and then also break down those barriers of trust. Um, if our patients don't trust us, they're not going to come see us. So how can we have that conversation to understand what those barriers are, why our patients aren't talking to us?
1: I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways to try to address the the more basic issues like transportation, right? Like we had we had taxi vouchers we would give to patients. We would connect them with different taxi companies. We had um, you know, bus tokens and, you know, passes and all those sorts of things. So that can help. You know, it's not yeah it's a band-aid, but it helps. But yeah. then we have issues around affording co pays for medications, right? Perhaps. Um, and you're right. Like when you order tests, you have to think all right, is this going to cost my patient an extra trip to town or across town in order to get that test? And if you don't have trust established and they don't feel like you understand their struggles, I mean, why are they going to listen to you anyway? So when you went to do your, your PhD, had you already been seeing all of this and Did you have clarity around what you were going to focus on during your PhD or did you need to explore more in order to find what your dissertation would be all about?
0: Yeah, so I I did have to do some brainstorming. Um, My first passion, because, you know, even though I had worked mother, baby um, and then women's health and pediatrics. I also saw an issue around sleep apnea. Um, so that was my initial topic. I was going to look at sleep apnea, how we could improve compliance, how we could improve our um, screening. But then it came to me and talking to my colleagues, talking to patients. Sleep apnea is not the big issue. Um, yes, it is an underdiagnosed aspect, but whenever you're dealing with you know, determinants of health, um, Patients can't, you know, that that sleep study costs money, that CPAP costs money. Um, so are we going to get them compliant with that? And then I really listened to my patients and looked um, and saw a, a bigger issue that affected women's health and pediatrics around breastfeeding. Um, I had one mom in particular coming to me in tears um, because she had had a dental uh, cavity. Her dentist had ordered amoxicillin and told her, oh, you have to stop breastfeeding for two weeks because of the amoxicillin. Not understanding that amoxicillin is completely safe during pregnancy, but also not understanding that when a mom stops breastfeeding for two weeks, that really hinders, if not halts, her milk production. So after the two weeks, this mom is trying to breastfeed again and realizing the baby's not getting fulfilled. Um, Her milk supply is significantly decreased. Um, And in just in tears, didn't have the support, didn't have the education. So I really looked at okay, this is a big issue. This is an issue that's easy to fix um, in this population, but that needs to be fixed. Um, And so that's where I really came into and talking with my patients about how can we support them with breastfeeding, knowing too. You have to think about when we think about our patients, the the perspective from their their history, their culture, their beliefs, and realizing when talking to these patients, their moms hadn't breastfeed, their grandmothers hadn't breastfeed, um, breastfed. Understanding that there's a historical aspect around this that does involve you know racism and it, involves cultural aspects around wet nurse, um, you know, and so that. Culturally breastfeeding wasn't something that that my patients being African American had adopted. You know, and so whenever they went to support from family, the family didn't know how to support them. They weren't sure about, you know, they were thinking, okay, well, the baby's crying. They're not fed, not realizing, you know, different reasons that babies cry. And so that's where I really came to, okay, what can I do that's inexpensive to support you? Um, most of my patients, if not all of them, had cell phones. Cell phones even because there are benefits, they can get cell phones for free. They could get text messages um, and I could go to come to them through text message support. Hmm. And so that's where really became my, my project, um, looking at how can I support my patient population in a way that is cost effective and gets the information to them at their fingertips.
1: So did you use your own practice and your patients as the kind of the test ground and that's where you gathered your data for your dissertation?
0: Correct. Um, you know, working with our the providers at the pediatric aspect and our women's health providers and the administration, we were all on board. We thought this is easy. This is great. Um, let's go forth and, and really support our patients. So we came up with the model using a free text app um, that we could send text messages to patients um, on a biweekly process process. With just knowing, too, working with lactation consultants, what are those big issues? Um, What are those things we're worried about in that first week? You know, then the second and the third and the fourth. So we developed a text message, um, easy, simple support. But also the nice part is patients could text back. So we did have a few moms that needed additional support. And they could text me through this app. And I could respond to them to give them that support. Um, So it was a great effort. Um, and you're talking early 2010s when text message, you know, apps were, we had apps, but they were still really being developed to mm-hmm. provide support to our patients.
1: Right. Yeah. We didn't have WhatsApp at that point, no. which, is, <laughs> which is end-to-end encrypted. So yeah. So you had to find something that would really work. And yeah. in in the healthcare space in general, like just let's pull the camera back, like big, big picture. Mm-hmm. We talked about transportation we talked Mm -hmm. about cost of medications um we you were just speaking specifically about breastfeeding and support Mm -hmm. what else do you think are the the main drivers of let's see unseen bias you know all the stuff that's impacting Let's say maternal mortality and morbidity in general. You know, what are some of the ones that have bubbled to the surface for you through your practice and also as an educator? What do you think?
0: Definitely unconscious bias okay. um, is one of those big things that as healthcare providers, we have to understand, we have to address. We have to understand the unconscious bias that unfortunately comes from our surroundings, comes from our upbringing and have to realize and really have that internal conversation to address that and think about what are those unconscious biases, How are those coming out and what we say and how we act um, with our patients? And then also really understanding our patients, understanding their background and understanding the concerns, the fears they may have from their own lived life experiences Um, And not being afraid to have those conversations, address that, Um, you know, tell your patients, I understand that you've probably lived a life and experience that I'm not going to be able to relate to, but I want to help break down that barrier. I want to hear your story. I want to make sure that what we are educating you on, the discussions we have, one are confidential, but also clear. Um, If there's something I say, let me know let's have that conversation let's make sure that there's that clear line of communication
1: mm-hmm. okay and in terms of what you just mentioned understanding the experience of other people mm-hmm. like you and i have both worked with underserved populations we've worked in fqhcs obviously you're you know a advanced practice nurse so i'm a staff nurse but um there's an issue that's been discussed a lot in the literature and out there, just out there in the space of that um, patients don't often enough see themselves reflected in the providers who are treating them. And here are you and I, two well-meaning white people, right, yes. trying to bridge the gap and stem the tide or whatever metaphor you want to use. Yeah. So, of course you and I do our best. However, you're also an educator, right? Mm -hmm. And you're a professor of nursing. And what do we do about that when our patients are not seeing themselves reflected in the population of providers that's out there offering treatment?
0: Yes. And we really need to to address that. We need to bring in patients and students from different backgrounds and even professors, which is a hard part. Hmm. If you look at the makeup of most schools of nursing, it is prominently white females. Um, you don't see tons of male professors but you hmm. also don't see tons of professors from different backgrounds, different races, um, different you know sexual orientation. And so we've got to do our efforts to really ensure one we're making an open comfort. Um, comfortable experience to bring in first those faculty. Because I think that's one of the issues is just like we're talking about in healthcare, our patients aren't seeing themselves and the healthcare providers, our students are not seeing themselves and the professors. So how do we ensure we can bring the, the nurses we do have um, that are from different backgrounds, cultural, you know, or sexual orientation to become faculty? And so I think it really starts at that. We need to make sure we are supporting, making sure our universities are open um, and comfortable for everybody so we can get the faculty from different backgrounds, then to help ensure we also can bring in students from different
1: backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't the forum for us to talk about like the recent Supreme Court ruling about affirmative action, because that's that's a whole can of worms and yes. <laughs> I don't even know enough about it to address it intelligently, really. I mean, I have some opinions, but... Yeah. Um, so we're not going to get into that. Yeah. But how does a school... Before we take a break, I just want to ask one question about Maryville University. How does a school like Maryville go about recruiting... Students from diverse backgrounds. What are some of the strategies Maryville is employing in that particular regard?
0: Yeah, so it really is widening our, our pool. So getting our recruiters out there to diverse schools, different population schools. Um, you know, one of the big things that we've started is summer camps, bringing in local community, you know, middle school to high schoolers from all different um, schools and the community um, to come and, and see what does healthcare professions look like? What does that bring? Mm-hmm. One of the things that came up is transportation. Part of the issue too is making sure we provide that transportation to those students that maybe can't get to those universities, but providing those opportunities for high school students to see and think about health professions um, and what that may mean across the board um, is one of the big first steps that we can do. Um, I know our university also has started a um, Girl Scout um, yeah, badge program. So for health professions, we created our own criteria, our own curriculum to get young nurse or young girls um, from Girl Scouts involved. And thinking about health professions, seeing the different aspects of health professions. So I think that's one of the big movements we have to get creative in our recruiting efforts at universities to really make sure students that are in middle school, high school are thinking about health professions.
1: Hmm. That's really smart. So summer camps. And even Mm -hmm. though Maryville is an online school since the pandemic, because students kind of embraced online learning, like a lot of people embraced working from home when they had the privilege of doing so, you still are able to bring students to campus and kind of give them an experience.
0: Well, our um, online programs for our nurse practitioner, we still have a on-campus Um, Undergrad BSN program, as well as offering other health professions such as PT, occupational therapy, um, music therapy, exercise science. So we do have a vast um, undergraduate um, in person program.
1: Oh, great. Great. I I misunderstood. So that's great. I forgot that part. Yeah. Yeah. So when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your career. And I'd like to specifically talk about being an educator and some of the other experiences and things that you glean from the nursing educational space and so a few other issues that I think we can still address around uh, DEI and related issues so hang in there with us we'll be right back with the second half of episode 445 the Nurse Keith Show with Dr. Michaela Elby of Maryville University. Welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with Dr. Michaela Elby of Maryville University. And Michaela, right before the break, we were talking about education. We were talking about DEI. We're talking about healthcare disparities. We covered a lot of ground really quickly. One of the things we talked about was patients not seeing themselves represented in the providers you treat them. And then you also brought in students not seeing themselves reflected in the professors and the the clinical instructors who are teaching them, what can a school do in terms of attracting diverse populations to come into the educational space? Because one of the things I hear out there in general, and as a career coach for nurses, people ask me about this, is that nursing professors well they generally don't earn as much as they could say out there working in a hospital and that economic disparity can really steer people away from becoming educators even though they might be awesome educators so how can schools bridge that gap in terms of bringing more people in because we know faculty shortage is part of what the bigger nursing shortage is you know being driven by.
0: Yes, exactly. And it's gotten harder Um, with the pandemic. We've seen, you know, bedside nursing to NP um, salaries just skyrocket. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are some benefits I always say to the the education, that flexibility. Um, It's not a nine to five job. There's some weekends, there's some evenings, but there's also that luxury. Um, I was talking to a nurse practitioner this morning, who was, how do I get into education? Um, You know, how do I, how do I go about that? And I talked about one of the big benefits that you don't think about is you have a kid that is sick. You have, uh, your children have school events that you want to attend. You get that flexibility when you're an educator, um, as long as you're not having a class period that I don't have to take the day off. I can go work virtually for that afternoon, go attend my kids' events. And then, you know, work maybe a little bit into that evening. There's just more flexibility, which is one of the big benefits um, with that, that, you know, you don't think about with the cost. The other big change is that we're seeing more accreditation and regulations really pushing nursing faculty to continue to have a clinical aspect. Mm. One of the things that Maryville University does allow their faculty is you get eight hours that you can do practice. And so, you know, I I have still a medical practice one day a week. Um, I think there's that huge benefit to me that, one, it does make up some of that salary aspect and difference. Two, it makes me more realistic for my students. I can really address the current things I'm seeing in practice um, Mm -hmm. because I still am a practicing nurse practitioner. Um, Same thing for undergraduate faculty, you know, still having that one day a week of clinical practice really gives you that hands-on skills. You know, hey, I, I there's new medications out. There's new technology that we're seeing in the hospital system. They're having that experience. They're used to it because they do have that one day a week of medical practice. Mm. So I think that's one of the big things, too, that can help some of that. Um, and also provide that, you know, fulfill your itch for wanting to be still at the bedside. Um, You still have that one day a week that you can go and be at the bedside and caring for your patients. Um, So you're getting the benefit of both being that educator role, but also still being that clinician.
1: And do you think more and more schools are requiring or opening up the space for their educators to work in the clinical space?
0: So definitely at the nurse practitioner level, yes, um, because mm-hmm. of the new standards. So for nurse practitioner education, we have something we go by that's called the National Task Force of NP Education. Um, in those new task force standards, it does say that to teach the clinical didactic content, the nurse practitioner faculty have to maintain that practice setting. So that is one of the requirements that we are seeing coming out of accreditation Um, Is that standard in practice that, yes, to keep your clinical skills up and that knowledge skills up, you still need to maintain that practice.
1: And I think that I'm sure knowing that your professors are still out there in the quote unquote real world, seeing real patients probably can instill more trust in the students because they know their professors are kind of current. Right. They're not talking about from a place of having practiced 25 years ago, for instance.
0: Exactly. Yeah. You know, it does. And the the students love that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they love to hear those clinical, real life situations that we have that we can share our expertise in. It makes the content more applicable, Um, being like, here's a situation. Um, A great example is the medication shortages we're seeing. Because I'm still practicing, I can tell them, "Hey, I'm I'm out there with you guys. I get it. You know, we're seeing the antibiotic shortage. So make sure as you're studying, you know the second and third choice options because you're going to have to go to those. It's not a what if situation. It's a you will um, type of situation."
1: So as as assistant dean of nursing and a professor, what levels do you teach at? Are you teaching at the master's level, the doctoral level, the undergrad?
0: So primarily at this point, I'm still teaching at the NP um, and doctoral level. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I would love to get back a little bit into the undergraduate world. It just hasn't been a need. Um, Our need has been for our facility to have me at the nurse practitioner level.
1: Mm -hmm. But you would like to teach some of the students. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, just have that connection. Um, Being new into the dean role, um, that's one of the areas that I want to get to know those undergrad students more, um, make a difference, have some input from them more. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, with schools really trying to address issues of DEI more, diversity, equity, and inclusion in their curricula, do you find students are they clamoring for that? Like, are they asking for it? Are they wanting more? Are they, you know, what are they voicing when it comes to issues around DEI?
0: I think at the beginning, it's that uncomfortable. It's that topic that, you know, if you want to say taboo, they're not comfortable with it. They may not have had to address it previously, So at first they are a little maybe um, scared to go in and address it. But once we really bring it forth and educate them about this is critical for caring for your patients, Um, you can't ignore it. You're going to see these situations with patients, you know, helping them have that background and understanding, I think then helps break down that barrier. And then definitely once they get into it um, and start critically thinking about having that self-reflection aspect that goes into it. It becomes more comfortable, which is the goal. Um, the goal is, as healthcare providers, we need to be comfortable to have those uncomfortable conversations, to have those uncomfortable self reflections. And once you get past that uncomfortable part of it, it then becomes second nature, which then makes it easier for us to relate to our patients, makes it easier for us to have those tough conversations with our patients to make that patient provider. Patient nurse experience more comfortable.
1: So, if you have some of those uncomfortable conversations in the safer container of nursing education, even though I'm sure, you know, that's uncomfortable enough talking mm-hmm. about it in the classroom, especially if you have a diverse student population and people might have to air their ignorance in front of other students, hopefully. When you have um, constructive conversations, that a lot of learning can happen. So as you continue to diversify your student body, do those conversations change in nature in terms of the conversations between students as the population becomes more diverse itself in, in, within the classroom?
0: I think it does. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, yes, it's still going to be very uncomfortable in the beginning and probably probably a little bit more uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but then once you start listening to each other and understanding each other, then it brings that closeness. It brings that connection um, that we are all humans. We all have our own background, our own story, but we have to understand each other. We have to, you know, get past that uncomfortable aspect about talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion to then get where we're building relationships. And I think that helps them to realize in the beginning, it's going to be maybe a little bit uncomfortable to address some of those situations with patients. But once you get past that, they can then realize and, and appreciate that bond that happens, mm-hmm. that connection that happens.
1: Yeah, and I I hope and that issues around Class are being addressed as well because Mm -hmm. we, there are lots, there's a lot of focus on race, which is very, very, very important. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. However, we also, you know, where I worked, we also had a fairly large population of white people from very poor neighborhoods who had Mm -hmm. the same issues basically in terms of access to care, being able to afford co pays, um, access to education, or being, I mean, access to transportation or being able to afford transportation you know childcare so a lot of those issues do are very similar between different racial groups even Correct. white people who are poor so we have to make sure we also bring issues of class because it's it's part of the calculation isn't it
0: oh yeah it is and that's where one of maryville really has opened up And done a lot of education, because I do think it's providing education to your faculty and helping your faculty realize how they have those conversations, how they address and handle those situations, because that's the key part. You have to have the faculty trained first before you can have those conversations in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, um, But one of the big mottos that Maryville has is we all have our race story. And that's really important to know. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter. We all have our own race story and experience. And like you said, it can be based on class. It can be based on you know not just black and white. It can be sexual orientation. It can you know DEI doesn't just include you know black and white issues. It, it includes multiple aspects, and you have to realize that and understand that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, here in. The desert Southwest, you know, we have uh, 16 um, um, Native American reservations. And out of those 16, what we call pueblos, um, out of those 16, there are three language groups. And then we have a very troubled history of students being warehoused in what they call the Indian schools and basically having the culture literally beat. Out of them, where they couldn't even speak their language, or they'd be beaten Mm -hmm. or denied food or whatever. Obviously, that's all changed, but the reverberations of that bubble through the generations that come subsequently. So, no matter where we are, we're in St. Louis, we're in Santa Fe, we're in, you know, Oregon or Maine, you know, you're going to find whatever it is are the issues for that region. Need mm-hmm. to be addressed, and many are similar, right? And yeah. many are also there's also some differences, like the the Indian schools were a very specific kind of cultural um, hammer that was used against a certain population. Um, and yeah. anyway, I just wanted to bring that into the conversation. But from your experience, let's talk about a couple specific things. you You've worked a lot with mother-baby, right? And you mentioned Mm -hmm. breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. When you're talking to your students about issues like African-American women having higher risk pregnancies more frequently, what do you tie that to? And how do you discuss with the students how we can improve that? What do we need to do in order to turn those outcomes around?
0: Yeah. And that's where there's in my course, we have a phenomenal documentary called When the Bow Breaks that we start with that conversation. Um, And it really interviewed several African-American women um, through their journey of pregnancy. And it brought in the aspect of for African-American women around pregnancy, it doesn't matter about your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter about your insurance status. Um, You know, they had interviewed a highly educated attorney that was black who had a high-risk pregnancy. Um, And it really addressed looking at the underlying aspects, maybe around racism, and that how does that underlying lived experience affect somebody's health? Um, you know, those those aspects that we need to figure out and and understand to understand our patients, to understand that risk, because it doesn't matter in this population for African-American pregnant women, you know, their access to care. We, you know, a lot of people be like, oh, well, they need better prenatal care. Well, even with having regular prenatal care, they still have that higher risk. Um, you know, there also can be some genetic aspects we do know. Um, We know that certain genetic backgrounds do put you at higher risk for hypertension, diabetes, those type things that we need to look at as well and address. But it did really look at what are the effects of, you know, underlying racism on populations? Um, What is that underlying fear that patients live through their life and living in that underlying fear How does that affect, you know, if if you're constantly having adrenaline pumping through you, your blood pressure is going to be higher. You're going to have more kidney issues and thinking about that aspect that may be a factor and we need to address that. And so it's really talking with patients was what they really came to and, and having those open conversations as a healthcare provider, talking about our risk doing based on genetics, based on our background. You know, how can we educate patients? How do we break down also that barrier, um, making patients comfortable um, with their healthcare providers? Because you could imagine if you already are stressed out because you're going to see a healthcare provider and you're worried about unconscious bias or racism being part of that care, your blood pressure is going to be higher when you go mm-hmm. see the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um so how do we make patients comfortable with their healthcare providers? How do we build that relationship so we can decrease at least the stress that we can mm-hmm. um and when we're seeing our patients
1: and i could see if you're african american and you have several sons and just the moment they walk out the door mm-hmm. um the concern and the fear that you live with just when they go to the store or if they are going to work or they are you know, um, walking to school, you know, yeah. and what, what can happen to them out in the world, just being Black men in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: these are issues that, yeah. the, you know, a white family doesn't necessarily have to think about, but their son walking mm-hmm. out the door. So there's a lot out there. And, yeah. you know, so there's, there's higher risk pregnancies, maternal mortality, infant mortality. Then mm-hmm. there's all these issues around Um, unconscious bias and microaggressions, and then you and I have already touched on transportation and all those other issues. So there's a lot to talk about, and there's a lot of issues to learn about and address. So as we wind down here, I want to ask you about nurse practitioners, advanced practice nurses. So we talk about the nursing shortage, We also out there in the world talk about physician shortages, especially what I hear anyway, are shortages of primary care doctors, especially in underserved areas where maybe doctors Mm -hmm. don't earn quite as much money. So they tend to go to the bigger population centers. What's your vision since you teach at the doctoral and master's level? you're helping to churn out those well-trained nurse practitioners and advanced practice nurses. What's your vision for how APRNs can fill the gap, especially when we're talking about underserved populations all around the country?
0: Yes, and one of my favorite classes to teach um, is role development. And in role development, we talk about where nurse practitioners, where the idea came from and Harriet uh, Mm -hmm. Ford. Um, and Loretta Ford, and Loretta Ford being the first nurse practitioner, her job became came about because she was working with a physician in rural Colorado, in pediatrics, and they realized it realized she had the skills, they just needed an additional provider, and that facility to treat the patients. And so looking working with a medical school developed the nurse practitioner program. And so the goal I always tell them is think about where we started. Our original formation was to help in underserved areas. Um, And so I really have students reflect on that. Think about that. Um, You know, even living in a urban area, there are tons of underserved patient populations. Um, You know, looking in Missouri where um, I practice, You know, majority of the counties in Missouri are classified as a under um, provider shortage area. And so knowing that provider shortages are across most of our states, you don't have to go necessarily to a rural setting. You can work with underserved patient populations in urban settings, in everywhere. So really looking at that. And the other big thing that we push for student education, part of the accreditation too, is How do you make a difference? How do you advocate? You know, nurses are advocates. Um, Nurse practitioners are still advocates. How do we advocate for change in our patients? And so we have students look at policies, look at what are their state regulations and legislations around healthcare that's gonna affect their patients? And how do they legislate? How do they, you know, whether it be being a lobbyist to just simply talking to the facility you're working at and how do we advocate for our patients to ensure they're getting the resources they need? Um, we do a lot of education around, you know, how do we get medications for patients who can't afford it? Looking and understanding the um, uh, prescriptive um, prescription, trying to think what it's called, um, Pharmaceutical assistance programs, how do they, what are those pharmaceutical assistant programs? How do they access that? Where do they find the forms? Looking at resources such as needy meds. Um, and then really when they get into the classes where they're looking at prescribing, diagnostics, I really challenge students to think about, okay, you ordered that test, but why? Mm-hmm. What, is it, what is it needed for? Why are you ordering it? What additional information is it going to provide to serve your patient? If it's just Well, I think I need this information, but does the physical exam give you that information? Are there other things versus ordering a unnecessary test? Um, You know, looking at the guidelines, you know, rotator cuff is a great example. If you look at the guidelines, there's a lot of evidence that an ultrasound is just as good initially versus an MRI. So can we order that ultrasound at a much lower cost to rule out a rotator cuff tear versus having to go straight to an MRI. Hmm. Um, so I think that's, those are those aspects that we really need to challenge our students and their educational preparation to think about, um, you know, the utilization of healthcare, the cost of healthcare for the patients, but also for the system.
1: Right. And even do you need that test? Because think about, your patient's going to have to find transportation and childcare in order to go get that test. So is it really necessary? So a lot of layers to that. I mean, there's the cost of care overall, you know, using resources, but then there's your patient's resources and the effect on their family if they have to get childcare. And you mentioned earlier, a sleep study, you know, if you have to go sleep at the sleep center all night, who's going to watch your kids, right? Who's yeah. going to get them off to school in the morning, right? Yeah. If, you know, there's there's so much to think about. So oh, yes. when you're teaching at that high level, doctoral students, master's students, then you're really trying to instill in them this population-based um, view, you know, this yeah. kind of bird's eye view of why they're doing what they're doing and the effect of each decision they make, I guess.
0: Correct. You know, and, and how do we use our advocacy um, to advocate for those patients, you mm-hmm. know, advocate at multiple levels that we have as in the healthcare realm. Um, you know, but also at the level we can control of those decisions we make.
1: Mm-hmm. And I also see that um, you've been involved in the March of Dimes, you've been involved in United States Junior Chamber, um, you've been involved in the Cystic Fibrosis Um uh, Foundation. So I'm sure those are things you talk about with students too, is ways yes. you can get involved in the community kind of beyond even your practice itself.
0: Correct. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um nurses, we are I always still say we are the most trusted profession for a reason. We need to use that to volunteer, support our, our communities. Good healthcare doesn't, you know, yes, we want to improve our patients, but we ultimately want to improve the healthcare outcomes of the community as a whole, the nation. Um, and so we do have to think about that holistic aspect of not just our individual patient, but how does that affect? Because I always say, think about if you improve the health of mom and dad, that's going to improve the child's health. That's going to, you know, make a difference probably too on the grandparents. You know, we got to look at that family unit and then that community as a whole.
1: Mm, Very well said. Now, there's so much more we could talk about, but we do have to wind down now. And at the end of each episode, I ask all of my guests for quick questions that have nothing to do about anything we just talked about. Are you game for a little, uh, what I call a lightning round? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the first question is, how would you, Dr. Michaela Elby, define success, either personally or professionally?
0: I think success is sharing. I really do. I I think it's not just my individual success. It's the success of those around me. It's the success of my program. It's the success of my community. So I think success isn't an individual aspect. I think it's at a larger level. If you're successful and you're promoting success onto others around you, it's going to just improve everybody as a whole. Hmm.
1: Spoken by a true educator and nurse who really keeps the big picture in mind. (laughs) Um, Just saying. Okay. Second question. (laughs) Could you name or just describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They could be living or dead. They could be a very, very famous person, or it could just be someone from your personal life.
0: The answer is always my mom. Um, Hmm. The reason my mom came from a very rural area um, underserved area, um, went and, you know, didn't, went and got a job with a high school degree. Um, but always instilled in me, continue education. So why was it in grade school? She got her associate's degree. Why was in middle school? She got her bachelor's. And then we graduated the same day I got my high school degree. She got her master's Wow. and she always said, nobody can take a degree away from you. You've earned that knowledge, that education, um, so I've always just looked at her as my role model, like keep going, keep shooting for the stars, keep improving yourself and education at the end of the day is the key.
1: Hmm. What was her name? Regina. Regina. she's still alive?
0: She's still alive.
1: <laughs> I'm so glad. And you're not the first guest to mention your mom. So that's lovely. So that's sounds like an incredible role model. Okay. Third question, the penultimate question. Is there a book or even a movie? It doesn't have to be an absolute favorite, but just something that's had an effect on the way you think, the way you live your life, the way you approach your work or your relationships.
0: That is a really tough one Mm. Um, (laughs) to think about.
1: And again, not necessarily a favorite, just something that has had an impact on you.
0: Mm hmm I know I'm going to blank on this one. That That is the hard one. Um, mm-hmm. There's been so many great ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of the title, but um, one of the books that I read that really made a difference, and I, I hate that I cannot think of the title right now. Mm-hmm. Part of Maryville, we have a book club um, that tends to include around DEI topics. And it was a book about a nurse worked in labor and delivery. Um, it was a black nurse, and she was caring for a patient that... Was part of a, a Nazi movement, and the baby unfortunately passed away, and the parents blamed her and thought that she had done something to harm their child. And in the end of the day, was found that no, this child had an underlying genetic disorder that was not caught and was the reason that they died. But I just always think about that because it so instills, the, the combat nurses have with our patients, mm-hmm. and and thinking about that unconscious bias not only from the provider aspect, but our patients. What is the patient's lived experience? What is their bias that they may have on us? And how do we communicate better to break that down? At the end of the book, um, the parents and the nurse did have a conversation and the mom realized it and apologized for her unconscious bias, her um, prejudice that led to this. But I hate that I cannot think of the title, but it was a phenomenal book <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that we read that really and still like some of the perspectives I can think about and the experiences that we have working women's health.
1: Hmm. Wow. Sounds like a powerful one. Okay. Last question. If you were named queen of the world tomorrow, what's one of the first things you'd want to do to improve the lives of your subjects?
0: That is, I really think it's access to care. I think okay. it is it fundamentally improving access to care for every single person improves like i said not just that individual patient but the community that you know so really improving access to care um would be my my biggest thing how do how do we just change the system you know um blow it up (laughs) per Mm -hmm. se to really improve access to care for everybody
1: you'd be a great queen dr elby So thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for playing with me on that that lightning round. And thanks for being a voice of reason and open-mindedness and inclusion and for educating the next education of nurses. Thank you for doing that awesome work in the world.
0: No, thank you guys.
1: Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Remember, the show notes can be found over on nursekeith.com. And please head over to maryville.edu to learn all about their on-campus undergrad programs and also their online programs. doctoral and master's level programs maryville.edu I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode and take some inspired action today and every day in the interest of your personal and professional satisfaction and development if you need personalized holistic career coaching consider nurse keith coaching and NurseKeith.com. mention the show and get 10% off your first coaching package and if you want to just have an initial conversation with me please just email me at keith at nursekeith.com and become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nursekeith if you would like and remember that we are proud members of the health podcast network at healthpodcastnetwork.com where you can find an amazing plethora of medical Healthcare and nursing podcasts. We're adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of Five Twenty R Podcasting. And before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Helen Keller: "The best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched; they must be felt with the heart." Be well. Dig deep. Seek joy. Keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Michaela Elby of Maryville University, saying adieu from
0: St. Louis, Missouri.
1: Thank you, Dr. Elby. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you on the proverbial flip side.